If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts. Dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine. This is the second of our January 2012 episodes. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information. Or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have... She kept on wearing this excessively large neckerchief. She refused to take it off despite being warned frequently. That was Sheila Ogilvie talking about how clothing was regulated in early modern Europe. The question, as they put it, is how were the pyramids built by people who worshipped vetches, leeks, onions and even cheese? And that was David Gange on Victorian views of ancient Egypt. Nowadays, when you go to the shops, you'll probably be able to buy almost anything you like without worrying about the legal consequences. That, however, has not always been the case. In many parts of Europe in the early modern period, there were strict rules about what different classes of people could and couldn't consume. Professor Sheila Ogilvie of Cambridge University has been researching these consumption regulations as part of a project on buying habits in southwestern Germany. I spoke to her recently about how these laws operated and what the consequences might have been. You and your team are currently researching sumptuary laws in early modern Germany. What exactly were these laws? Well, sumptuary laws are what they, what they say they are, which is they're legal prescriptions that try to regulate what people can consume. And they mostly focused on trying to stop people from wearing, eating, drinking and um, doing for fun things that the 
respectable classes didn't want them to do. So they mostly took the form of laws against luxurious clothing or big banquets or having too many guests at your wedding party, playing music, dancing, all sorts of luxury expenditures. And when you're talking there about respectable classes, does that indicate that these laws didn't apply to everyone across society? Well, they tended to follow social gradations. So um, one major motivation for having them was that the higher social strata or the, the traditional groups that had enjoyed high social status but perhaps saw themselves as being uh, threatened by new upwardly mobile groups uh, wanted to demarcate their status vis-a-vis these lower strata or especially the sort of nouveau riche strata. So they often laid down what clothing you could wear if you were of a particular social rank um, and forbade people below that rank uh, to wear things like fancy furs or imported textiles or to invite more than 12 people to their weddings. So really, sumptuary laws were often um, quite lax for better off people, for courtiers, for members of the nobility, but quite strict for people, peasants, ordinary artisans. So it was a way of kind of keeping the masses down. Well, that was one motivation for them. But actually, uh, sometimes the elite used them against one another. So um, there would be uh, a tendency for uh, people who were... uh, for example, the, a village vicar might try to use the sumptuary regulations against another member of the professional classes who he saw as, in a sense, um, challenging his monopoly over what it meant to be an educated professional living in a, in a village. So, although the sumptuary ordinances were often used by higher social strata against lower ones. That was only one of many motivations. Sometimes the higher social strata used them against each other. And so in theory, could someone from the lower social strata use it against someone from the higher strata? Probably in theory they could, but I've never encountered an example of that happening. It was mostly used either against people who were more or less on the same level as you or against people who were below you. I've never, I've never, at least in our research on early modern Germany, I've never encountered it being used in a sort of upward direction. And who were the people who created these laws? Well, again, that varied a great deal across different societies because I've mentioned one group, which are the higher social strata wanting to demarcate their status vis-a-vis the the sort of nouveau riche or the sits or the chavs of that time. But there were respectable male householders who wanted to define gender-specific conduct, prevent sexual disorder, help themselves resist their wives and daughters' demand for new fashions. So there was quite a strong misogynistic strain to a lot of European sumptuary ordinances um, to restrain the barbarous and irrepressible bestiality of women, in the words used by one Italian sumptuary ordinance. So there was men trying to control women, There were employers who wanted to reduce servants' temptation to demand higher wages. Um, There were guild masters who wanted to require ordinary people to wear domestically produced textiles and furs in order to protect their own markets against foreign competition. And, of course, 
there were churchmen, there are always religious guys who want to restrain worldly adorn adornment and lavish sociability. Then um, sometimes I don't think it was just that the religious groups wanted to restrict luxury, but I think they truly believed in some cases that God was angry at human beings and um, would, would actually punish people by, for example, inflicting war on the village or inflicting an epidemic on the village if, if the sumptuary ordinances weren't observed. I mean, certainly one of our, the two villages that we're studying um, for our project, which is a small village in, south, in southwest Germany, one village vicar um, actually wrote down in the church court records in 1703 that it was necessary to uh, fine a group of young men who were playing and listening to music on Sundays because God, who is already angry on account of our misdeeds, will be moved to persecute us further and discipline us more with the rod of war. And the reason he said that in 1703 was that the village had actually been burnt down by a group of soldiers earlier in that year. So, clearly, religious people really believed that if you allowed luxury to take off in your village, something bad would happen to you. And how exactly were these rules enforced? Well, I think that where they were enforced, and of course they weren't always effectively enforced, but in the places in Europe where they were effectively enforced, it was usually because there was a combination of a central government that was willing to pass these laws and some local mechanism, usually a community court or a church court that really functioned effectively so that local people could report one another. Because, of course, you know, the central government doesn't know what kind of clothes you're wearing or whether you're playing music on Sundays or how many guests you invited to your wedding. But your neighbors know. And so what you need in order for sumptuary ordinances to be uh, enforced is usually a small face-to-face -face community where people know what each other are doing and then an institutional mechanism like a church court or a communal court where people can report each other. And so you'd require quite a lot of public support for these laws if you were relying on the public to be going to authorities and telling them when people have broken them. Yes, and so I suspect that what we'll find is that it was only certain aspects of the sumptuary ordinances that were enforced, and that a lot of the, the, the um, provisions in them were simply ignored. So it really, I, like every aspect of government, certainly in pre-industrial times, um, the effectiveness of what the central state could do relied very much on cooperation from the local level. So unless there were respectable groups or very influential groups on the local level that were, had an interest in allying with the central state to enforce some law, usually it didn't happen. What kind of punishments could people expect if they flouted these laws? Well, they could be um, they could be fined, as we discussed in our article. Often, quite a, a quite large fines for people at the time, several days' wages, sometimes up to eleven or fourteen days' wages. Occasionally, if they were very um, balshy and very um, sort of impertinent in the communal court, they might be put in the stocks or put in the sort of village lockup for a few hours. Usually, not longer than that. Um, there was a lot of, I think, um, 
informal pressure placed on you. So, for example, in the story that we tell in our article, Magdalena Schötlin, uh, she was only fined by her community court after a lot of informal pressure had been placed on her and hadn't worked. So what she was doing was she kept on wearing this excessively large neckerchief. She refused to take it off despite being warned frequently. And then the vicar preached a sermon one Sunday, castigating sartorial display, and as far as we can tell, probably naming Magdalena Schöttlin. So there was a sort of naming and shaming and then a few days later, Magdalena was sitting around with a group of friends and remarked that if the vicar didn't have anything better to preach about than fancy neckcloths, he could well leave off preaching altogether. And you can't help applauding her for being that balshi, but of course, for Magdalena, it was a really bad move because, of course, someone couldn't resist reporting this to the village elders. She was summoned to appear before the church court, and it was only then that she actually had this fine imposed on her. So I think the... Um, people who were trying to impose the sumptuary regulations or trying to enforce them tried to use informal mechanisms um, for a long time before they actually punished you. But, you know, there could be quite serious um, uh, controls placed on you. For example, um, in another example, which I think we mention in our article, um, a rather poor widow in her 50s applied for welfare support from her community court and she was told that she couldn't have it because her grown-up son and daughter who had moved away so they weren't living with her had been seen in clothing above what is fitting so being denied welfare support because your grown-up children were wearing fancy clothing is a fairly severe punishment i think yeah definitely um, so were there lots of people like this Magdalena who would resist the rules? Well, it's hard to tell because, of course, with any crime, there's always a sort of black figure. You don't know who the people are who are um, resisting it. I think I have, we have the impression from looking in detail at the com community court records that most people just tried to slip by. They bought fancy new gear, they wore it, they hoped no one would notice, or if they did notice that they wouldn't report them. But sometimes you were caught, especially if you lived in a small community where everyone knew you, and especially if there were these institutional mechanisms like church courts to which you could be reported. Um, and in that case, you would be hauled before the church court and reprimanded. People responded in various ways. Some of them apologized very, um, very self-abasingly and promised not to do it again. And that was actually a very good strategy. I mean, one shouldn't really interpret it as just being that they are abasing themselves. I think they reckoned, you know, if I abase myself, then maybe they won't find me. And often you do read in the margins of the church court that, you know, because he apologized and said he wouldn't do it again, we decided not to find him. But some, like Magdalena Schöttlin, were very bolshy. And um, they went on wearing their excessively large neckerchiefs or their excessively wide trousers. And um, when they, pressure was put on them, they, they kept on protesting until they were th thrown in the village lockup. Um, and then there were people who were more powerful and who could protest much more effectively. Um, in the 1680s, uh, one 
village pastor started using the clothes ordinances as a way of getting at a number, another member of the village elite. It happened to be the bar the barber surgeon and his wife. We don't really know why there was such hostility between these two educated professionals, but the pastor tried, the, the vicar tried to find the barber surgeon for having a very small ribbon on his coat and treated him disrespectfully in public at the town hall in front of a bunch of women. The whole town was talking about it for weeks. And the barber surgeon actually petitioned the central government in Stuttgart. And it gave rise to a whole series of court hearings. There was a feud between the two families that lasted for nine years. So that was another way in which you could actually resist the, um, the enforcement of these sumptuary ordinances was to fight back. Overall, would you say that these ordinances worked? Did they really impact on what was consumed at the time? It's hard to tell. That, that's one of the things that we're looking at in our project. Um, our project isn't, in fact, focused primarily on the sumptuary ordinances. What we're focused on is what people consumed in these small communities um, in the less developed centre of Europe over a 300-year period and what kind of um, factors affected it one way or another. And it was almost um, a surprise to us to find that we knew, of course, that these sumptuary ordinances existed, but we were a bit surprised to find that they were enforced. And we were very surprised to find that there was actually at least some quite systematic enforcement. Um, uh, you know, some registers survive with lists of names describing exactly what people were wearing and what they were fined for wearing. Um, so... It, clearly, at some periods, there was systematic enforcement. Um, and we do know by now that the adoption of new consumption habits appears to have taken place somewhat later um, in this part of Germany and probably throughout German-speaking Central Europe. Then, I mean, somewhat later than it did, for example, in England or the Netherlands. And... What we want to do is to see if there is some relationship between restrictions on consumption and the adoption or non-adoption of new fashions or new other forms of consumption. But it's really an open question. What we have now is we have the existence of these sumptuary laws. We've got evidence that sometimes they were enforced quite systematically. But what we want to do is bring that together with the information that we're gathering out of. We have thousands of personal inventories of lists of what people owned at marriage and at death. And what we want to do is look systematically at these inventories and say, do people own things that they weren't actually allowed to own according to the sumptuary ordinances? And I think it's only then that we'll be able to say definitively, yes, it looks as if these laws were one of the factors that caused um, the consumer revolution to come relatively late to Germany. The sumptuary laws only really in Germany, or were they in other countries as well? No, they ha you find laws about what people can consume in very many societies over the past 20 centuries or more. They had sumptuary regulations in ancient Greece and Rome. They had them in China 
starting in the third century and straight up to the 16th century. Um, they were really strong sumptuary ordinances in Japan from the 17th to the 19th century. And of course, if you think about it, there are some modern examples. I mean, 20th century United States had prohibition of alcohol between 1919 and 1933. And that's what's called an elementary sumptuary ordinance. So it's an or ordinance about the consumption of a particular kind of food or drink. Um, even modern Western societies have laws about um, the consumption of alcohol, consumption of cannabis, consumption of trans fats in, in New York in the present day. And of course, you know, women's clothing, whether women go with bare heads or whether they wear the headscarf, all of those things, if you think about it, laws about what women can wear are sumptuary ordinances. So probably in every society that's ever existed, people have tried to control consumption, at least consumption by other people. But there, is there something particular about Germany that made you want to focus on that country? Well, um, sumptuary regulation does vary across societies. In Europe, nearly every society had sumptuary laws in the Middle Ages, but then sometime between 1500 and 1600, a very interesting divergence began, because in some European societies, existing sumptuary laws stopped being enforced, and new ones stopped being passed. So, in England, for instance, the last sumptuary law was passed in 1604, and even before that, there the, the enforcement was so bad that, you know, you have Puritan preachers like Philip Stubbs writing in 1583 that nowhere is such a confused mingle-mangle of apparel as in England and such preposterous excess thereof. So England was seen both by English Puritans at the time and by foreign visitors as being a place where there were no restrictions on what people could wear. And the Dutch Republic, which came into being in 1581 after the Dutch rebelled against Spain, never passed any sumptuary laws. So you have these two very advanced North Atlantic societies where sumptuary laws all but disappeared by about 1600. And then, on the other hand, around 1600, many other European societies started developing much more active of central states and much more effective local bureaucracies. And in some of those societies, sumptuary laws began multiplying in number. And I think German-speaking Central Europe, Germany, Switzerland appear to be the places where we have quite a lot of evidence that there was systematic enforcement, um, at least in some places and sometimes. So the fact that you get this very interesting divergence in Europe, say around 1600, just at the point at which the consumer revolution is supposed to have started. You also get this divergence in, in sumptuary regulation with some societies getting rid of it and others intensifying it is something which makes Germany a very interesting sort of laboratory test for what the institutional preconditions might have been for the kind of beneficial takeoff in, in consumption which economic historians are now thinking was one of the powerhouses that lay behind um, ultimate factory industrialization. So potentially these sumptuary laws could be a major reason why Germany didn't industrialize anything like as early as a country like Britain. Well, they could be a reason. We don't, I mean, economists and historians still don't know what 
all the factors are that cause economic growth and development. But we do know that a lot of the key changes happened in exactly this period we're looking at, the period before the first factories. And this idea of a consumer revolution, um, that economic growth is caused by people being motivated by the possibility of buying new, cheap, attractive, fashionable things in the market and supplying more of their time to the market in order to earn the money so that they can buy these things. This whole idea of a, of a consumer revolution is certainly one of the most powerful new um, theories which economic historians have come up with to explain why economic growth really predates the first factories. And you can see what sumptuary regulations will do to that kind of consumer revolution virtuous circle. If you stop less well-off people and women and young people from being allowed to buy and wear fancy clothes, or you increase the costs and risks of that sort of new consumption by imposing penalties on it, then that chokes off that, that huge motivation for people to supply more time to the market so that they can buy these new consumer objects. So I think it would be exaggerated to say that um, restrictions on consumption are the only thing that delay, might have delayed the growth of the economy in German-speaking Central Europe. But they may have been one of a number of restrictions on both consumption and, of course, production, and especially the consumption and production choices of women, which slowed down this kind of beneficial, pre-modern economic growth that we think was necessary for industrialization to happen in the end. And finally, when and why did these sumptuary laws disappear in German-speaking Europe? Well, that's a very interesting question, and it's something that we hope to get some answers to by tracing changes in consumption over time. One, um, one thing which seems to have played a role was actually the French Revolution, which may sound a bit strange because you think, oh, how, why did the French Revolution affect Germany? But um, it did in the sense that there's a, um, an increasing uh, volume of research which suggests that um, France actually exported uh, its revolution to other parts of Europe. And um, there were spillover effects from... Uh, France into neighboring bits of Germany. And certainly, uh, the, although France didn't have as many or as strongly enforced sumptuary regulations as Germany did, um, one of the big things that was abolished with the French Revolution in France were sumptuary regulations. And in the German states, you see a growth in, if you like, radical thinking toward the end of the 18th century with people echoing some of the uh, French thinkers saying, you know, why are we restricting what people can wear? Um, is this really the kind of society that we want to be? Isn't it just counterproductive? And so it may have been the influence of French revolutionary ideas, um, or it may simply have been that finally there were a lot of changes taking place in in the institutional structures inside German economies 
around the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. So, um, for example, the guilds were being broken down. And if you um, remember, one of the motivations behind sumptuary ordinances were guild masters who wanted to prevent luxury imports and force ordinary people to consume domestic textiles. So the guilds were being broken down, serfdom was being broken down in a lot of parts of Germany that still had it around the beginning of the 19th century. All sorts of traditional institutions and traditional privileges were being broken down and the abolition of the sumptuary ordinances may simply have been part of that wider social transformation which really freed up the immense entrepreneurial energies inside German society so that after about 1900, you see really, really fast economic growth in Germany. A sort of, um, the first German economic miracle um, took place during the 19th century where Germany went from really being a less developed economy to being one of the richest and most successful economies in the world by the end of the century. And a lot of it was due to this sort of institutional change that took place after 1800. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. That was Professor Sheila Ogilvie. You can read an article co-written by her in our January 2012 issue. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. Today's trivia has been submitted by James McGovern, a listener from Dublin. He writes to tell us about the story of Boston Corbett, the man who shot and killed Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth, in 1865. Corbett himself was a troubled individual who in 1887 threatened officers of the Kansas legislature with a pistol. He later escaped from mental asylum. If anyone would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, we'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and we'll give you a name-check in return. Email us at podcast at historyextra.com with any of your curious historical facts. Our second interview this week is with David Gange, a historian at Birmingham University. Gange specialises in the history of religion, the history of Near Eastern archaeology, and the development of historical thought. Editor Dave Musgrove caught up with him to bring these strands of his research together in a discussion of how the study of ancient Egypt ignited minds in 19th century Britain and impacted on social and religious attitudes here as well. You've been doing an interesting research project looking at uh, 19th century Egypt and Egyptology. Um, So the first question that springs to mind is, um, who was interested in Egypt in the 19th century and why? 
Okay, um, one of the things I find really interesting about Egyptology in this period is that so many different people are interested in it, um, partly because of the biblical elements concerned. So when historians look at 19th century religion, usually they have their kind of elite um, clergymen who they can study, and then they have the popular religion, they can look at how many people are attending church and things. Whereas um, texts on Egyptology um, move into both these groups. So you can find um, young people wandering around poor areas of London and writing to British Museum curators about an Egyptological text they've written, and you can find the Archbishop of Canterbury giving his comments on exactly the same text. So it's a really useful way of working out how ideas are circulating between lots of different um, social groups. And is there a particular reason why Egypt sprung to, sprung to interest in the 19th century? I'd always been of interest to people, and it, was just, it just happens that, that that's what you're researching. Um, there are lots of reasons why, why all the Egyptian interest really comes out in the 19th century. The first one is political. So in 1798, um, Nelson defeats Napoleon's fleet in the Battle of the Nile, and there's lots and lots of really nationalistic interest in Egypt, in Britain, at that point. The French having previously invaded Egypt. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the Rosetta Stone is found then and taken by the British from the French. Um, and then there are kind of 20-odd years during which um, there's an attempt to try and work out what this script means. Um, and at the same time, you get lots and lots of shows in London um, using Egyptian material. It's the fam most famous one associated with the um, circus strongman, Giovanni Battista um, Belzoni. And yeah, then the rest of the century after 1822 and decipherment is, is spent trying to work out how this language can be used to interpret Egyptian material. And at the same time, there are lots of changes going on in how the Bible is interpreted. So lots of ideas coming from Germany in the late 18th century, challenging traditional ways of reading the biblical text. Um, and they reach British readers during the 19th century, and archaeology becomes a really useful tool against those um, textual interpretations, those textual deconstructions. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. So, so through the 19th century then, was, was, was Egypt basically open house to people from Britain? Could they, just, could they go there fairly easily and, and, and explore at will? Um, the laws gradually tighten up across the 19th century. I mean, it, it's phenomenally expensive to get to Egypt and do much digging. Um, earlier on in the 19th century, it gets cheaper, um, quite quickly in the mid-19th century. By 1869, you even have Thomas Cook's tours going to Egypt. Um, but by the mid-century, you have a, an antiquity service founded, which is run by French archaeologists who jealously guard their territory. So the thing that really stops British um, Egyptologists excavating at will later in the century is actually competition with the French, rather than um, kind of ideas of Egyptian sovereignty, which the British trample all over until, until into the 20th century. Okay. Let's talk about the Rosetta Stone for a second and the decipherment. So that's sort of the, the first stage of interest in Egyptology, you were saying, in the first couple of decades of the 19th century, that's where interest is focused. Is that right? Well, yes, the interest is political at that point. Um, I think the Rosetta Stone is a, is a little bit of a, a red herring there. It's about this defeat of the French. Mm. Um, and it's about images of Egypt coming into circulation in Britain in a much bigger way than they had before, which is, of course, partly about cheaper printing. Um, 
But the race, the race to decipher the hieroglyphs, as it's called, is a little bit mythical, mm. I think. Um, there's much less interest in that in the British press than you might expect. And also, once Champollion actually publishes... Who was... Who oh, sorry. Once Francois Champollion, Jean-Francois Champollion, the, the French um, decipherer, uh, publishes his um, letter to Monsieur Dacier, in which he... He shows the work that he's done on decipherment and shows that he can read texts. There's very little interest in that in Britain. Champollion is assumed to be wrong for a long time. There's a great phrase from the Arctic explorer, John Barrow, who says that Champollion is wandering into a maze of theory and will lose himself in the inextricable labyrinth. Even in 1829, um, the Marcus Spinetto's lectures at Cambridge, it's argued that no progress has been made in hieroglyphs, and even when they are, um, it, just confusion will follow for decades. And this is usually interpreted as being competition, national competition again. So um, this French decipherer is dismissed because the British want to claim decipherment for Thomas Young, a British polymath. But they're just as dismissive of Thomas Young in, in reality. He's assumed to be losing himself in the same kind of paradoxical thinking. It's argued by travellers, um, such as Robert Richardson, that it's going to be decades until someone deciphers it, that the true decipherer has not yet been born. So, one thing that this means for Egyptology is that that idea of Egyptology becoming professional in the 1820s and 30s, becoming scientific, rather than this kind of amateur collecting beforehand, is, is just nonsense. Um, the idea of a, a scientific profession or Egyptology is a, is a much, much later one from the 1890s, the 1900s, the 1910s. Um, until that point, biblical ideas of Egypt and classical ideas of Egypt, ones associated with Greece in particular, um, are manipulated and Egypt itself is pulled between these two models, that biblical model and that Greek model. Um, it has very little identity of its own until much later. Okay, so let's talk a bit about what you're saying about the, the analysis of the Bible and, and the text of the Bible and how that uh, impacted on, on Egyptology. So what, what's going on there? What's, what's, what's the story? To, let's analyse that. So um, the late 18th century, we have lots of scholars in German universities, um, in particular places like Göttingen and um, Tübingen, working on the origins of biblical texts the kind of documents that lie behind biblical texts. So they're assuming that the Bible isn't this unitary document given by God to Moses and, and written down, but is something that's been compiled over time by ancient Hebrews to try and explain their national past. Um, and this is hugely controversial. It's controversial in Germany, but it's even more controversial in Britain, which is going through this period of religious revival that we call the Evangelical Revival. Um, and to begin with, Egyptology is seen as a kind of radical pursuit. Famous German Baron um, Bunsen, um, who is a friend of royalty in both Britain and Germany, writes a huge Egypt's place in universal history, um, which attempts to make Egyptian um, monuments seem much, much older um, than people in Britain had accepted them as up to this point. But as the century goes on, um, British scholars realise that Egyptology can actually be used in the opposite way. The kind of um, the associations that Egypt has are switched. So from being Bunsen's um, attack on 
of the Old Testament as literal historical truth, Egyptology begins to be used in defence of the Bible. Um, by going out and finding the Exodus route, you can prove that the Exodus happened as it's said in the Bible. So, so Egyptologists become sort of guardians of the Bible in a sense then? Absolutely. By the 1880s and 90s, when the first organised British excavations in Egypt take place, um, the appeals for subscriptions for funding that Egyptological organisations make is to the church and chapel going public who want to defend the biblical text. The first organised British excavations in Egypt are an attempt to find the Exodus route and to excavate the cities along the way. What they really want to find is a Hebrew patriarch with his texts on him. He would have been buried with, um, with biblical texts that would go back long before the documents they have at that point. And they've yet to find that, though? Oh, they're absolutely yet to find that, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is why, um, as, as you've pointed out to me in an email, a 19th century Archbishop of Canterbury chose to call his cat after the Egyptian god Ra. That is true, yes. Um, Edward White Benson, who was Archbishop of Canterbury from 1883 to 1896, had a, a whole family who were extraordinarily interested in ancient Egypt. Um, his son, E.F. Benson, wrote short stories about ancient Egypt. His daughter, um, who was a, a slightly mystical character, but still a good, a good Protestant, um, offered, wrote of offering prayers to the Sphinx. Um, she, she found in Egypt exactly those kind of confirmations of the Bible, but also a more mystical version of her Protestantism. And her father, who was very interested in the Eastern question, um, the political, um, British political engagement with what was going on in the old Ottoman Empire throughout the 19th century, um, saw Egyptology as um, a powerful confirmation of what the British could do to demonstrate the power of the biblical text. Um, but there was, there's, there's another element to, to interest in Egyptology, which is this, this idea that it was uh, in some way hinged to industrialisation and was, and, and was being used by the industrialists, by, by the working men, to sort of tie in with what they were doing. So tell me a bit, a bit about that. Yes, my favourite example of this is a debate, um, a very fiery debate, um, in Newcastle in the 1820s. In fact, it happens in 1822. It's a much bigger story in Britain than Champollion is, than Decipherment is in 1822, um, when the um, people of Newcastle um, and their antiquarian society receive a mummy from Thebes. And it happens at the same time as a new journal is launching, the Newcastle magazine. And they devote lots of the first few issues to ancient Egypt. And they establish this question um, of whether the Egyptians should be seen as these kind of industrious engineering people or whether they are crude pagans with nothing to say. The question, as they put it, is, is how were the pyramids built by people who worshipped vetches, leeks, onions and even cheese? Um, and the debate that strikes up is really intriguing in that um, the Anglican establishment almost universally dismiss ancient Egypt as uh, um, the ancient Egyptians as a people who could worship nothing better than dogs. Um, whereas the um, non-conformists, the um, more radical figures, 
are willing to see ancient Egypt as this really industrious, productive ancient society. And they use ancient Egypt to try and inspire the working people of Newcastle to, um, to count industry as part of their identity, to make manufacturing something inspirational and with a huge ancient pedigree. Um, so what they're doing in one way is um, they feel that the establishment owns Greece and Rome. They um, established people educated at Oxford and Cambridge or um, brought up through the established church have this um, tradition of study of Greece and Rome. So the, the nonconformists want to elevate ancient Egypt um, above Greece to claim their own ancient history. They're trying to rewrite ancient history at the same time as they're trying to rewrite the political order in the present by um, pushing manufacturing above landed wealth and by pushing for democratic um, voting. Okay, so it strikes me that um, in most Victorian regional museums they, they, they all appear to have had some sort of mummy or Egypt display and even today you can still see a lot of uh, Egyptian exhibitions in, in, in far-flung parts of Britain. Um, did did the Victorian and 19th century and Victorian later Victorian people flock to these exhibitions? Were they infused by Egypt, or or as you were talking about the decipherment, were they slightly ambiguous about the whole thing? Um, it's it's strange how quickly this can change across decades. I mean, that Newcastle example, when the mummy is put on display, um, it gets many more visitors than they ever had for anything else. Uh, but someone in the first few days steals the painted footboard of the mummy. And it's the first thing that the Newcastle ever has to put behind glass. Their first kind of museum exhibit in the modern sense of being closed off um, behind glass. Um, so it had caused quite a stir there. Um, the um, Egyptian exhibits in the British Museum were famous for drawing in holiday crowds and um, people with a, a more passing interest. So the British Museum authorities tried to guide people away from Egyptian material and bring them onto the supposedly more elevating items from Greece and Rome. And mummy unwrappings, of course, were very, very popular, especially by the 1840s. Um, huge crowds in very, very large um, halls that were usually used for big popular entertainments would gather to, to watch these uh, mummies being unravelled and to smell these mummies being unravelled. Um, and especially once we get to the 1880s, once Britain has actually occupied Egypt and a lot more material comes back because you've got kind of military transport going backwards and forwards from Egypt, um, then Egyptian um, exhibits, especially in the northwest of England, become really, really popular. Um, part of the northwest connection, I think, is that is the cotton, the cotton trade in the northwest. Lots of cotton coming up to Egypt and bringing with it um, mummies and statuary, things like that. Okay, last question. Um, obviously, today there's a, a very big debate about whether these objects from antiquity should be in British museums. Was there any discussion in the 19th century about whether it was correct that they were coming over? There was, but it was usually pretty peripheral. It was usually assumed until, until in the 1920s, Tutankhamun is a really important moment for this um, in 1922. It was assumed that Europeans had interest in the past 
and that Egyptian people lived purely in the present, that they didn't have a historical interest. So it was assumed that archaeologists were in fact protecting these items from the Egyptians and should get them out of Egypt if they could. Um, it's with Tutankhamun that European Egyptologists stop being able to ignore the Egyptian um, national interest in history. The peripheral interest earlier on um, comes from people like the, the slightly crazy um, American lawyer Francis Cope Whitehouse who thought that the pyramids were huge water towers that the Biblical Joseph had built. He presses quite early on for all archaeology in Egypt to operate in the same way as the archaeology of Pompeii had earlier on. So archaeologists should never try to stock museums but they should always try to recreate ancient cities on their original sites. But the kind of mad ideas he associated these with meant that that idea didn't really um, get much take up in Britain. David Gange is lecturer in British history at the University of Birmingham. His book, Egyptology in British Culture and Religion, should be published by Oxford University Press later this year or early in 2013. Well, that's all for this week's episode. I hope you'll join us again next week for a Captain Scott special edition. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the meticulous Dave Gibson. Thanks for listening. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.